If you didn't catch my name the first time, my name is Tom, and um, I thank you all for being here with us this morning. Uh, thank you for worshiping with us this morning at Trinity. Um, if you are a first-time visitor, there are Connect cards on your seats. You can fill those out. That's not a way for us to, to stalk you or send you spam, but that's a, that's a way for us to kind of follow up with you uh, during the week and just thank you for being with us. Also, if you did not get a listening guide when you came in, it's a little uh, paper leaflet that's going to have some outlines there to help you follow along with the preaching of the Word. Uh, just put your hand up and somebody from the back and get one of those to you. Um, well, I wish you all this morning a very, very happy, very belated Thanksgiving, um, and I am going to venture to guess I'm also going to be the first person to wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Uh, I have loved Christmas for as long as I can remember. Um, I'll even confess that I actually believed in Santa Claus at one point in my life, and I, I continued to believe in Santa Claus for a lot longer than anybody has any right to. In fact, I can still remember the Christmas that I stopped believing in Santa Claus. And I remember that that Christmas felt a little empty somehow. It felt a little bit less special. There was a little bit less anticipation, a little less excitement. I wasn't looking forward to it quite as much as I had in years past. I didn't realize it at the time, but I had bought into a lie at a very young age about Christmas. I believed that a month of celebrating the incarnation of Christ, Christ coming into the world to save us from our sins, that that wasn't enough somehow. That you couldn't be excited, you couldn't celebrate for an entire month and look forward with anticipation to that celebration if it was just about Jesus. It had to be about Jesus and something else. Well, it took me a few years, but as I grew in my understanding of the beauty of the gospel and the preciousness of Christ's gift, I realized that, yes, you can spend... A month. You can spend a glorious season just focusing on the incarnation of Christ, Christ becoming a man to come and save us from our sins. You can make your whole Christmas experience just about Jesus. He is entrancing and exciting and exhilarating enough, and your Christmas will be far better off for it. As we turn this morning to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 15, Paul in this text is writing to a group of believers who have believed the same kind of lie that I once did. They have been taught that the gospel somehow wasn't enough for them. They were being taught that if they really wanted to have complete, total, ultimate salvation, they had to have Jesus and they had to supplement him with something else, with a, a heresy, a false teaching that was being peddled to them. And he writes to these Colossian Christians urging them not to move on from Christ, not to fall into false teaching that makes little of Christ. Instead, he urges them and he urges us this morning to stand firm by remembering what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So read with me, if you will, Colossians chapter 2. Our text is going to be 11 through 15, but I'm actually going to start by reading in verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you also have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." 
In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of God. Pray with me, please. Father God, this morning, would you give us eyes to see Christ? Would you give us eyes to, to believe your promises? Would you give us a fresh desire for Jesus Christ, a fresh joy in him, and let us go from this place with a fresh obedience in Christ and a fresh seeing him as Lord in all of our lives? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So from this text this morning, we're going to see three benefits that believers enjoy in the gospel, or if you prefer, three reasons not to fall into false teaching that belittles Christ. The first of these benefits is our union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Union with Christ is a major theme of Paul's letters, and the book of Colossians is no exception. If you flip back over to Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, you'll find this statement. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And if you read down to verses 21 and 22, it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then if you read down to verses 6 and 7 that David taught on a couple of weeks ago, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then finally, if you'll read verse 10 of chapter 2 that DJ taught on for us last week, it says, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So it comes up over and over again, this idea of union with Christ. And it never means anything weird or, or freaky like that we merge with Christ or we fuse with Christ or we stop being individuals or that we somehow lose our personality. It means that we are connected with Christ through faith and that because of that, we have a reconciled relationship with God. And this text we're looking at this morning continues to unpack what it means for believers to have union with Christ. It says that we are one with Christ by virtue of sharing three things with him, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But before we get into the verse, we're going to need some background information because there's an elephant in this verse, and it's the word circumcision. What on earth is circumcision? Well, it refers to a Jewish practice that God told Abraham to keep way, way back in Genesis 17. I'm not going to go into detail about what that actually is, um, but, but broadly speaking, it is the act of physically marking the body of all of the males in the community to show their participation in God's covenant with Abraham. The point was to show that they were a cut-off people, a people separated from the world 
to God. But the point was never about a physical change. It was always about showing faith. The point was never cutting. It was always the covenant. It was always the covenant that God had made with his people. And circumcision was a way of showing their faith in God. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know that Israel eventually loses sight of what circumcision really means. They, they kept up well enough with physical, outward, external circumcision, but they didn't stay rooted in God. They acted as though faithfulness to God was just a matter of keeping outward obedience, outward external symbols, and that if they did those things, then the heart didn't matter, and the way that they lived their lives the rest of the time didn't matter. And God, of course, takes issue with this. He says in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 25 and 26, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in the heart. Because circumcision was always really about the heart. It was about the covenant and never just about a physical outward change. Circumcision was still a big deal in Paul's day. If you read in Philippians 3, Paul says that part of his Jewish boasting, part of his badges of honor was, was the fact that he had been circumcised on the eighth day. That was part of him being a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, having kept the law completely. And it's such a big deal that when God begins saving the Gentiles en masse, who by definition are not Jewish, who have not been physically circumcised, a lot of Jewish Christians wanted the Gentiles to get circumcised before they could join the church. They had focused so much on the outward and the physical that they let that take priority over what God was clearly doing in the hearts of the Gentile converts. Now, to Paul, this amounted to adding to Christ and abandoning the gospel. And he spills a ton of ink in the New Testament proving that circumcision is not a prerequisite for our salvation. And this debate is basically what the entire book of Galatians is about, which I'd encourage you to read. Paul defending the purity of the gospel from those who would want to add requirements above faith in Christ, requirements like good works or, or, or circumcision. So with all of that as a background, we can finally begin to unpack what's going on in verse 11, which reads, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. What Paul is saying there is that what has happened to the Colossians is what never really happened in Israel's history, that they have had their hearts circumcised. They have had their hearts and their lives changed by God's grace in Jesus Christ. The big clue in this verse is the phrase, made without hands. Whenever you see that in the New Testament, it always sets up a contrast between what God has done by his grace and what man can do in his own strength. So he's contrasting physical circumcision, which would have been done by the hands of man, with spiritual circumcision by grace that only God can do. The Colossians have had their old way of life, their old self, cut off from their new self through the grace of Christ. But you may be wondering, if Paul wants to just say that they've been changed by grace and he's talking to Gentiles, why use the language of circumcision at all? If he's not talking to predominantly Jewish believers, what's the point of even bringing up this, this odd language? 
Well, based on the near context in verses 8 through 10, it appears at least plausible that circumcision somehow featured in the false teaching that the Colossians were up against. Remember, last week we read in verses 8 through 10, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, we're never, of course, told exactly what the Colossian heresy is, um, and Paul never goes into Galatian-style polemics against circumcision like he does in Galatians. So, so we want to be cautious, but it does seem at least plausible that circumcision somehow featured in the false teaching of these heretics. They were somehow saying that one of the things you had to do over and above believing in Christ was get circumcised. And against that, Paul says, you don't need physical circumcision. You already have true spiritual circumcision in Christ. And the way that this spiritual circumcision has taken place, Paul says, is by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, this is a tough phrase here, and it makes us ask a couple of questions. Is the putting off of the body of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ two different things, or are they referring to the same thing? Well, I think if we take the second phrase first, we, we can shed a little bit of light on this. Uh, what does it mean by the circumcision of Christ? What, what does that phrase mean? Well, Christ was indeed physically circumcised. He was born a Jew. He would have been an obedient Jew. He would have been physically circumcised when he was very young. Um, and so some have seen this as a reference to Christ's substitutionary obedience in our place, which is absolutely a biblical truth. Christ perfectly obeyed the Old Testament law, which made him a fit sacrifice for us that he could go to the cross and die for our sins in our place, and also so that when we put our faith in him, we get the record of his perfect obedience. We get that credited to us in the place of our previous record of sin. So if we were to take this phrase, the circumcision of Christ, that way, we would be absolutely affirming a biblical gospel truth. But I think there's a better way to take this phrase. I think we're on the strongest ground taking the putting off of the body of the flesh as being the same thing as the circumcision of Christ and taking both of these phrases as referring to his death. A couple of reasons. Um, one is that the Greek phrase here for the body of the flesh, it's to somatos te sarkos. And it's very, very similar to a similar Greek phrase in chapter 1, verse 22. It's a little bit different. It reads, entosomati te sarkos autu, in his body of the flesh. And in chapter 1, verse 22, it is unambiguously referring to the body of Christ and to believers' union with Christ in his death. So there's kind of a parallel there. Furthermore, the verb here, it's kind of an unusual one. It's apikdisi, and it's an uncommon one but it actually occurs twice in our text. It occurs in a similar form down there in verse 15, where Paul speaks of God disarming the rulers and authorities through the death of Christ. Furthermore, the word for circumcision literally means to cut off. It means to make a cutting. So it fits with the idea of Christ putting off his body, of literally having his body cut off from him in death. But perhaps the biggest reason is the immediate context. Keep in mind that this whole section here, verses 11 through 15, it's all about our union with Christ. And phrases like in him or with him occur five times in these verses. So we're focusing on what is true of believers in Jesus Christ. 
And if you read into verse 12, immediately following the phrase, the circumcision of Christ, Paul tells the Colossians that they have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there's a lot going on there, but, it, but if you caught that, that verse gives us the second and third parts of a very common formula that occurs in the New Testament. It refers to Christ's burial and our union with him in burial, and it refers to Christ's resurrection, both things in which we are united with Christ. We share those things with Christ. But, but if we have those second two elements, we're missing something. We're missing a reference to Christ's death. He obviously can't be buried, and he can't be raised unless he has first died. And we cannot share in Christ's burial or Christ's resurrection unless we first share in his death. So there's a lot of good reasons here for taking the putting off of the body and the circumcision of Christ as supplying this missing element. Believers in Christ have put off their, their old selves and are one with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And the way that the Colossians have shown this union with Christ is in his burial and his resurrection. It's through baptism. Now, baptism is not what saves us. And, and lest we go down that road, Paul immediately comes in with a beautiful theological left hook. And he says that all of this has happened. Their union with Christ, the cutting off of the old self, their union with his death, burial, and resurrection, it has all happened through faith. Faith in the living God that raised Jesus from the dead. And baptism is an outward act of obedience that symbolizes that union with Christ. Now, just as an aside, this, is, this text is a big reason why we at Trinity Church celebrate and participate in believer's baptism by immersion. Because baptism, this text teaches, is for believers. It is for those who have already had oneness with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection. And baptism by immersion powerfully symbolizes that. We go down into the water, symbolizing the death and the burial of Christ. And then we come back out of the water, symbolizing that we have been raised with Christ. So just as an aside, if you've ever wondered why we, uh, we don't baptize babies and we don't baptize by sprinkling, this text and others like it is a major reason why we, pr we participate in that particular mode of baptism. So in summary, believers in Christ Jesus have become circumcised in the heart they have made a clean break with their old way of life, and this has happened through union with Christ by faith, through their sharing in his death, burial, and resurrection, and the outward sign of, that, of their union and their participation in him is baptism. And because of this, the philosophy, the empty deceit, the human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world that were mentioned back in verse 8, these things have no appeal whatsoever for the Colossians. They were battling a false teaching that taught them that Christ wasn't enough, that they needed something more than Christ. They needed to move on from the gospel if they wanted to experience full salvation. But Paul says that because of their union with Christ, because of their sharing in his death and his burial and his resurrection, they already have something that blows out of the water whatever the false teachers had to offer. Uh, I've been married to my wife for about eight years now, but I can still remember the very first time I ever did our income taxes. And, and those of you who are married know that this is, this is a really interesting thing about doing your taxes. 
Bet you never heard that phrase before. Um, The IRS takes a really interesting and I think correct view of a married couple. It, It views them as one taxable entity. And as you're doing your taxes, you have the option of filing jointly, of one person doing the taxes for both persons. So you're considered as one individual, and so the deductions for one and the income for the other both count towards the whole. And so when you're going through your taxes and you're doing your your TurboTax or, or whatever software you're using, and you finally get to the end and you click Submit, you, the one who has hit that button physically, have turned in your tax return. But so has your spouse. What is true of you can also be said to be true of them because you are seen as one. The same thing is true of those who belong and believe in Jesus Christ. We are one with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So what can be said of Christ can also be said of us. That just as Jesus has died and been buried and raised again, we can be said to have died and have been buried and have been raised again. And because of all that, we have made a clean break with our old lives, our old selves, and we enjoy a new life in Jesus Christ. I want to ask you this morning, do you see yourself as one with Christ this way? Do you think of his death and his burial and resurrection as being somehow external to you, being things that happened a long time ago, far, far away. Yes, maybe an historical truth, maybe even a true article of faith, maybe even something that you believe, but something that is, that is far away from you, something that does not make a whole lot of difference to you on a daily basis. Do you ever feel as though all of this, everything that Christ did to save you from your sins is, is just like a carrot that God is waving in front of you for you to strain and strive to get and hope that you're going to lay hold of, but, but any second he might just jerk it away from you and you can't have it anymore. Oh no, brothers and sisters. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you have gone through his death and his burial and his resurrection with him because you have been made one with him in faith by the powerful working of God who raised him, and nothing can ever take that away from you. What is true of you in Jesus is closer than your own skin. It is truer than your own name. This is who you are. And I encourage you today to see yourself this way. Look at your life through this lens today. Look at your stressful job and your messy relationships and your unfulfilled hopes and dreams and the things in your past that you wish you could let go of. Look at all of those things through this lens. You have had a clean break made in Christ by sharing in his life and his death and his resurrection. And Paul builds on this idea of our old way of life being cut off from us in Christ in verses 13 and 14, where we see our second benefit as believers in Christ Jesus. We enjoy the cancellation of our debt in Christ. Now, Paul begins verse 13 by actually going backwards to verse 12. Verse 12 ends with believers in Christ having been raised from the dead and through faith, and now Paul is going to take them backwards to where they were before they knew Christ. And it's not a pretty picture. Paul says that before they knew Christ, the Colossians were dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh. 
Paul loves to do this in his writings. He loves to use these black and white terms to, to set up these very strong, these very powerful contrasts. He has already told believers what is true of them now in Christ, and to emphasize that, he goes backwards to the way they had it before they knew Christ. He wants to remind the Colossians that they were in a different state before knowing Christ as opposed to after. The state that they were in was death. And the Greek word there means dead. It means lifeless. It means no pulse. He's not saying that the Colossians were were physically dead. He's not saying that they were lying in the grave, physically decomposing. He's saying that something that was true of them was actually much worse. He's saying that they were spiritually dead. Peter O'Brien says that this phrase refers to alienation and separation from God and being liable for eternal death. Physical death is awful. It is unnatural. It is not the way that God meant for our lives to end. Our lives are never supposed to end. It is probably the worst thing that we can imagine in this life. But spiritual death is worse because physical death marks the end of someone's life in the grave. But spiritual death marks the beginning of someone's eternity in hell, an eternity separated from God in whom are every good thing. God in whose presence is fullness of joy, separation from God forever. We might ask, how did the Colossians find themselves in this predicament? Were they victims? Were they unlucky? Did they just happen to catch the spiritual equivalent of cancer or Ebola through no fault of their own? No. No, Paul makes clear that their death was due to their trespasses and the uncircumcision of their flesh. In a parallel passage to this in Ephesians chapter 2, Verses 2 and 3, Paul says that before the Ephesians knew Christ, they were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom they once lived in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, being by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And all of this was true of the Colossians as well. Before they knew Christ, they were just like the rest of the world. They were following its course. They were obedient to Satan. They were living for their passions, enslaved by the desires of their body and their mind. They were by nature children of wrath, born under a sentence of divine judgment. And this idea of going along with the course of the world, being one with the world, is what Paul is getting at when he says that the Colossians were uncircumcised in their flesh. Now, it's true, they were physically uncircumcised. They were predominantly Gentiles, not Jews. But the physical uncircumcision was a sign of their inner spiritual uncircumcision. You see, these weren't just people who dabbled in sin, who occasionally did bad things on the weekend, but were basically good, upright people. No, their hearts were corrupt, and it showed in their sinful actions. But that state of guilt 
and trespass and death, Paul says, was no obstacle to God because God included them in Christ by his mercy and his grace. And when the Colossians were still dead in their trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of their flesh, Paul writes that God made them alive together with Christ, having forgiven them all their trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against them with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you see the reversal there? Previously, the Colossians were dead in their trespasses and sins, but now they are alive, and God has forgiven all of their trespasses in Christ. And notice, too, this takes place, all of this, through their union with Christ. They are now raised to new life in Christ, echoing the language of verse 12, sharing in Christ's resurrection. And how does God deal with their trespasses? He takes the record of debt that stood against them, the record of their failure to perfectly keep the moral law of Christ, their rap sheet of all their crimes of rebellion against the holy God that caused them to be spiritually dead in the first place. He takes that awful declaration and he sets it aside. But he doesn't just leave it over there. He doesn't just casually toss it aside like the the gizzard and the neck from the turkey. No, he nails it to the cross. God takes the record of wrongdoing, of our sin, our rebellion, of idolatry and rape and murder and genocide and child abuse and every sinful thing we can think of. God takes all of that and he puts it on his son and he lets his son be nailed to the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order for the Colossians, in order for us who were dead in our trespasses to be made alive, Christ had to die. He had to die in our place. He had to take on himself our record of sin, to become sin in our place so that we could be raised with him and that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this means that the Colossians passed their former way of life, however they used to live, all of that is gone. This meant that whatever hold the philosophy, the empty deceit, the human tradition, the elemental spirits of the world, whatever hold that had on them in their past life, that is gone. Whatever allegiance they had to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, that is gone. And if you are in Christ this morning, that is true of you as well. You may have have read the book or, or seen a, a film adaptation of the story of, of Les Miserables by Hugo, uh, Victor Hugo. Um, if you haven't, it's the story of Jean Valjean, a, a French convict. And the story begins, he gets released from prison and he goes to the nearest town. And he's trying to find work, he's trying to start over. But, but nobody will give him work because he's an ex-con and he can't trust him. So finally, in desperation, he goes and knocks on the door of the kindly bishop, Monsieur Morel. And Morel takes him in and shows him kindness, gives him food, gives him a place to stay. 
And Valjean betrays this kindness. He repays it by stealing from the bishop. He makes off with some of his valuable silver. And then the authorities run Valjean down and they bring him back to the bishop's house and they say, we found this man, he's a thief, he's taken your silver. And the bishop covers for him. He says, no, 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 the silver was a gift. In fact, and he goes over to the table and he, he brings back the two silver candlesticks, the most valuable pieces of the whole set. And he says, you forgot these. Here, take these as well. And the authorities unchain Valjean and, and they let him go. And Morel says to him, he says to Valjean, I have bought your freedom with this silver. Go and live a different life. You and I have committed far greater crimes than anybody in a story. You and I have even committed greater crimes than Russell Crowe did when he sang in that movie a few years ago. It was bad. It was just bad. And I like Russell Crowe. No, you and I have sinned against an infinitely holy God. Our penalty was greater than we could ever hope to pay. And we were dead in our trespasses, under a sentence of eternal wrath. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then God has canceled that record of debt through the death of Christ, and he has raised you to new life in Jesus Christ. But there are two dangers that we run into. We can either make too much or we can make too little of our former life before we knew Christ. It's very easy to make too, too much of it. We can walk around daily with that little voice in our ear that reminds us of how we used to live, of how we used to be, of the people that we hurt, of the opportunities we missed, of the feelings that we crushed. And, and that voice convinces us that any moment, any moment you could go right back into that, you can live like that again. We can live daily with feelings of regret, feelings of shame, feelings of filth. And, and while Martin Luther rightly said that the entirety of the Christian life is to be one of repentance, if we are constantly carrying around feelings of shame and guilt and filthiness over our lives before we knew Christ, we are demeaning the sacrifice of Christ. Brothers and sisters, your past is nailed to the cross. Leave your past where God put it. But the other danger is that we can very easily make too little of our former life. I see this most frequently in myself when I find myself growing bored or complacent about the gospel. I confess that when I first looked at this text to preach this morning, I felt a little bit underwhelmed. The gospel again, I thought? Surely we don't need another sermon-long exposition of what the gospel is. But oh, what a foolish thought that was. We never move on from the gospel Tim Keller has rightly said that the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, but it is the A through Z of Christianity. It is our entire life. And if we think the way I did, if we think that the gospel is something basic that we can move on from, that thinking betrays that we have lost sight of the state that we were in before we knew Christ, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that we could not save ourselves, and that if Christ had not come, we would still be in that state, even today. 
And it betrays a heart that has lost sight of the costliness of our salvation. Our salvation is free to us. It is without work to us, but it was costly and required the greatest of all works of Jesus Christ. He had to become sin in our place and let himself be nailed to a cross in our place. That was the cost to Christ of our salvation. So ask yourself this morning, which of these two errors do you fall into? Do you make too much of your former sinfulness? Do you walk in guilt and shame? Or do you make too little of your former sinfulness? Do you walk in complacency? Do you find yourself growing bored with the gospel? Whichever side you find yourself on, flee to the middle. See that your past life really was as horrific and ugly as the gospel says it was. But see too that the grace of Christ is as awesome and as powerful as the gospel says it is. But as amazing as all this is, God has done even more through the cross than to forgive us our sins and cancel the debt against us. Back in verse 8, Paul warned the Colossians not to be taken captive by the elemental spirits of the world. And he goes on in verse 15 to say that through the death of Christ, those spirits are powerless over the Colossians because of the third and final benefit they enjoy in the gospel which is triumph over rulers and authorities in Christ. Verse 15 reads, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now this phrase, disarmed the rulers and authorities, runs parallel to what Paul said in verse 14. Essentially what he's saying is that by the cancellation of our debt, by the nailing of that debt to the cross, God has done this. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. What he's essentially saying is that that record of our debt was a weapon in the hand of those rulers and authorities, those demonic entities. It was a weapon used by those spiritual powers to keep the Colossians enslaved. By reminding them of their their sinfulness, by reminding them of their failure, they kept the Colossians running here and there, every which way, trying to find something, anything at all that would let them be saved, anything except trusting in Christ. But now that that record of debt has been nailed to the cross, Paul says, those rulers and authorities are disarmed. They have had their teeth pulled. They remain as malicious and wicked in their intent against believers as ever, That's why Paul has to warn them in verse 8, warn the Colossians not to be taken captive by them. But their bark is worse than their bite. These powers are like the evil wizard Saruman in The Lord of the Rings when the good wizard Gandalf says to him, your staff is broken, and the staff shatters into a million pieces. They are utterly disarmed. They have no weapon to use against them anymore. And more than that, Paul says they've been exposed. God has put them to open shame. God has shown the universe the true character of these spiritual powers. He has not only stripped them of their weapon and their authority, he has stripped them of their dignity. And where they were once an object of fear and of reverence for the Colossians, they are now shown to be objects of jeering and of mocking. The weakness and the helplessness of these defeated demonic entities 
contrasts with the infinite superiority and power of Christ who has conquered them. And this really comes out in the concluding phrase of this verse, by triumphing over them in him. The image here is not really one of conquest or of victory the way our English Bible suggests. God indeed has won the victory over these demonic powers. But what this phrase pictures is not so much the game-winning touchdown as the post-game victory parade. You see, in Paul's day, when the Romans would conquer a people, they would have their army march through Rome with their, with their weapons on their shoulders, and they would bring behind them, in chains, in rags, their defeated, despondent captives to show their citizens, to show we have an invincible army. And by contrast, look at these pathetic captives. Look at these people that we've defeated. See how pathetic they are. See how great we are. That's, that's the language here. And earlier we read from Ephesians chapter 4, and it really draws this out as well, where in verse 8 it says that when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. So the images of Christ having won victory over these demonic powers, and now he is marching through the streets of, of his city, and he is leading these demonic captives stripped defeated, humiliated for all to see. And their humiliation in defeat serves to magnify Christ's exaltation in victory. But this is here to do more than just pump the Colossians up. Paul doesn't just write this to them so that they can, they can bust into the Colossian version of a fight song or a victory chant. He writes this so that they and we will understand that we have no reason to be taken captive by these rulers and authorities. Rather, we have every reason to do what we were commanded to do back in verses 6 and 7 of this passage. To walk in Christ, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as we were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Because those that would deceive us are disarmed and stripped of their authority, but Christ is triumphant and glorified. I want you to imagine being a Roman citizen in Paul's day. And weeks ago, you got the word that the Roman legions have been victorious. They've defeated the hated enemy from the nearby country. And now today, it's finally come. The, the legions have arrived in the city, and it's time for the great victory parade. And you're one of thousands of people lining the streets. And in comes the army. Here comes the generals. Here come the officers looking spectacular in their armor. And, and here come the ranks upon ranks upon ranks of soldiers with their weapons. They look invincible. They look like an army that could never lose a skirmish, let alone a battle or a war. And then behind them, shuffling along in chains and in rags, are these defeated, despondent captives that don't look like they could be a challenge or a threat to anybody. People are laughing at them. People are calling them names. They might be throwing rotten fruit at them. But the contrast could not be starker. You've got the, vict the victorious, invincible army at the front. You've got the defeated, despondent captives at the back. Can you imagine breaking from the crowd, running out into that parade, and hugging one of those captives and saying, It's okay. I still think you're great. You can be my king. We're going to get you out of here. I'm going to worship you and serve you and, and do whatever you say. No, you're not going to do that. 
You're going to be impressed with the army and the officers and the weapons. You're not going to be impressed with the captives in their chains and their rags. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ has won a far greater victory than any earthly army ever could. Jesus has defeated Satan and sin and death and every demonic power, and he has led them as humiliated captives in his victory parade. And because of this, you and I need to take our marching orders from Christ, our captain, and not from the rulers and authorities that he has defeated. We need to check our lives for any hint of reliance upon or obedience to anything or anyone beside Christ. Now, most of the time, we don't have to worry about blatantly serving demons or consciously subscribing to false teaching. It's, it's usually a more subtle problem than that. Ask yourself this morning, is there anything, is there anyone that you are trusting to in addition to Jesus Christ this morning for your salvation? Are you trusting in your parenting Are you trusting in how nice you were to your spouse this morning? Are you trusting in the self-control that you showed on Thursday at the dinner table? Are you trusting in how much is in your bank account or how much is not in your bank account because you've given your money to the poor? Are you trusting in your Bible reading, in your times of prayer, or in your efforts to reach the lost with the gospel? Satan is happy to have us doing good deeds so long as we are trusting in those things instead of in Christ, so long as we are doing those things to get salvation instead of doing them out of a heart that has been transformed by salvation. And this morning, if you are trusting in something that you are doing instead of what Christ has done, in effect, you are submitting to those rulers and authorities that God has made a mockery of in the cross of Christ. Don't submit to Christ's defeated enemies. Trust in Christ alone this morning, the conqueror who leads every rebel power as humiliated and defeated captives. In this text, we've seen three benefits that we enjoy in the gospel. We enjoy union with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We enjoy the cancellation of our debt, the forgiveness of our sins in Christ. And in Christ, we enjoy triumph, victory over the rulers and authorities. We are to hold fast to Christ, therefore, and resist the allure of empty philosophy and deceit by remembering those things. Pray with me if you would. Lord Jesus, you are victorious. You have taken on the record of our sin, our death, our trespasses, you have let that be nailed in yourself to the cross and by doing so, you have disarmed the rulers and authorities, the demonic entities that once held us captive. Jesus, this morning, would you give us a fresh sense that you and you alone are mighty to save? Would you rid from us any confidence in ourselves, any trust in ourselves, any trust that if we can get something right, if we can can check off some some box in our checklist, if we can do enough good, if we can give enough away, that if we do those things, we can be saved. Rid us of that, Jesus. Let us see that you and you alone are sufficient to save us. 
you and you alone are necessary to save us. Give us eyes to see that this morning, we pray. In your name, amen.